Welcome to the Tippy Top Entrepreneur Experience. On the show today, we have Luke Smith, partner at Forward Partners. Great sharing the screen with you, Luke. Thanks very much. Really, really excited to be here. Great. No, thanks. Very, very kind of you. Now, Luke and I have uh, connected a, a long while back on LinkedIn, I think, and, and probably saw each other at a few events. But um, as the term goes, we connected properly and really caught up in real life IRL, um, as they say, in mid-2021 last year. And uh, I was actually uh, fishing through your LinkedIn profile and noticed we have 268 mutual connections, uh, which is is, is yeah, first for me and the biggest. And as I said, uh, helped by your 7,000 odd followers. So that really helps with the crossover. And I think suffice oh. to say, <laughs> go for it. Yeah, I didn't realize I had that many. <laughs> I think I've got to be a bit more selective on LinkedIn in the future. Uh, but they're, they're followers, not connections. And that is, therein lies the difference. You've got to set your profile to follow and then you become you know, more popular without having all the inbound mail. So, um, yeah, and I mean, suffice to say that, you know, for the audience out there that Luke's very well connected and well known in the industry. And of course, Forward Partners, if you don't already know, has gone from strength to strength. Uh, so Luke, uh, to do it service, do you want to talk us through a bit about your experience and tell us a bit more about Forward Partners? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe I'll start with Forward Partners, then I'll do me. So Forward Partners, we're a pre-seed and seed stage fund. So typically investing, you know, 200K up to a couple of million. Um, where we invest is applied AI, e-commerce and marketplaces. Although like many funds, we're, we're very excited about Web3 at the minute. Uh, we're different from, from many investors in that we have what we call the studio team. So alongside the, the investment team, we've got a team of, of experts who, who can actually work with the companies we invest in. So developers, design, product, talent, growth, PR and comms. And so they, they are almost like a not-for-profit agency who can work on our portfolio. And it means we can just be a lot more hands-on than, than most funds, particularly at the earlier stages. And then the other slight difference is um, we're publicly listed. So we're, we're not a GPLP structure. We are a, a publicly traded stock. And that means that we don't need to worry about exits on the same kind of timeframes as most funds because our investors can get exits through selling their shares rather than having to wait for, for all the assets to, to exit and, and, and be realized. Uh, so, so yeah, that's Forward Partners, uh, UK focus, so, so don't really do much outside the UK. Uh, and I've been with Forward Partners for a bit over five years now, <clears throat> and I lead the investment team. Um, so yeah, working across all elements of, of the investment side. Uh, before Forward, I was at a corporate VC called Reed Elsevier Ventures. So the, the host is, is kind of the academic published Elsevier, but also does a bunch of other things. It was their corporate VC. I was there for five years. And I actually, um, I started off my career in strategy consultancy with a, a firm called Oliver Wyman, which is a, a nice grounding. Uh, and way, way back, I thought I wanted to be an academic. So I actually did a PhD in biochemistry well back in the day. And, and sadly, I've never really used it since, but, uh, but it, was, it was kind of fun and interesting. And it helps you assess deals now. So uh, yeah, strong USP. Well, <laughs> it helps me assess deals in the life sciences and we don't do many of them, sadly. Uh, <laughs> but it, as I say, it was, it was a fun four years. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. And, and really nice to hear about forward partners and you know, everyone talks about being a, a value add VC and more than money, very few actually are. But you know, with that operating model, that it sounds like you've really nailed it. And I keep hearing about that model and I think it's so successful. So um, yeah, impressive. Thank you, yeah. And it, it's really important part of what we're doing because I think mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're big believers in, in just making entrepreneurs' lives easier and helping them to be as successful as possible. And having this team that can, can solve some of their problems means we can do that in a way that others can't. And, and you know, frankly, it's hard to differentiate on cash alone. Like my cash is the same as everyone else's. And so having something where we can be different and, mm. and go the extra mile for the, the companies we invest in, I think, I think really helps. 
Yeah, and then that cross-pollination of knowledge, because a lot of VCs will see this, the same things going wrong, but they will see it and they won't be able to act upon it. And you actually need someone to sit with the founder and work work through it. So uh, it's such a brilliant model. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, great. Okay. So, um, and, and of course, yeah, the, the, the reason for this podcast is to try and download some of those learnings to share with the, the wider entrepreneurial universe. And who knows, you might end up having a chat with Ford Partners at some stage. I uh, hope you do. So uh, with Luke's help, we've come up with three excellent topics, uh, drawing upon Luke's extensive experience and, of course, just filling in the gaps in, in terms of the, the schedule of the Tibita podcast, making sure we cover all aspects of fundraising boards, running companies, and so forth. So three main topics for today are getting to market in B2B SaaS. A lot of people are, you know, they're already there, but how do you actually get that initial traction? There's some good insights there. Uh, extracting the most from your board. I'm really looking forward to that session. And fundraising 101. We always talk about fundraising and there's always so much that I learn and the audience learns. So I think we can't do that one enough. So getting straight in, getting to market in B2B SaaS, question bank one. For your first customers, Luke, there's often a temptation to go for big brand tier ones. Why could this be a mistake and what should entrepreneurs rather do? So yeah, I think look, it, it's really tempting to go for the, the big brand names. I think it, it looks great on a, an investor deck, makes everyone pay attention, can pay a lot. So I think you know, there's good reasons to go for it. But I think you have to be aware of, of the downsides of targeting those customers. And the big one is just the time taken. Uh, you know, big enterprise accounts, although they are big and they'll pay well, the, the process to get to a sale is, is normally an awful lot longer than some of the smaller ones. And the other thing to bear in mind is a lot of big enterprises are used to their suppliers working to their terms. And that means a few different things. One is it often means a lot more integration because they're going to expect your solution to plug into the, the, the systems that they are using. And what that often means for an early stage business is one of your developers coming away from building product and building features and, and working on integrations. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's the right choice, but it just means you're moving slower. So, you know, you have to factor in one, it's pulling away bandwidth, two, it's taking longer. And so the, the, the kind of advice I often give is by all means do aim to close some of these big accounts and, and, and work on them but don't put all your eggs in one basket. Do not think I've got one big bank and it's it's quarter of a million, I'm made, you know, I just need to close this and then, I'm, then I can raise my seed and everything is good because there's a big risk in 12 months, you'll be in a very similar position. So I think what you've got to do is be able to balance maybe one of these processes moving and, and, and you as a founder often kind of moving it through the checkpoints and, and just playing the long game but alongside that, you've got to be able to find some of the customers who will move quicker and, and won't pay the same, but, you know, where they're more willing to use your system, they're not going to ask for the big integration. They might even sign your legal docs, so you're not having to totally bend everything out of shape to sign theirs. And, you know, where it starts being feasible to close in three, six months, whatever the right time frame is, instead of looking for six, 12 plus months. And so, like, one of the, the founders I work with, um, he had verbal confirmation that a big bank was going to work with him. And you know, great, everyone clap hands. Well done guys. Fantastic. Series A on the way. And I think it was six months after that, that they finally signed. Wow. And that's six months. And, and that's not six months of, you know, we'll see in six months and, and they write an email. That's six months of bi-weekly bi meetings, mm. pushing things forward, you know, founder, really struggling to focus on other deals because they're having to, to push this. And so, yeah, you know, you just have to factor in that it's really slow. It bends your whole business out of shape potentially. And so don't get caught up on the, the big price ticket and, and <clears throat> be keeping things moving with smaller customers and building that momentum alongside. Yeah. Well said the um, analogy that comes to mind is that there's a big, uh, South African retail chain called Pick and Pay and the founder and said, we're not after the whales, we're after the krill. Catch the krill and then we'll catch the whales. And I thought that's just such a nice mental image to have in your head. 
Yeah, I think the key thing for me is like the right size of customers, because again, you have to factor in like if you've got salespeople calling people up and walking them through the product and demoing and all that, you probably need a customer of a certain size to be able to make that make sense. But if you're going to be going for big enterprise tickets, you, you need a whole enterprise sales process and you need to understand the blocking and tackling of, of running enterprise sales, you know, who are your stakeholders? What do they want? What does sign off look like and all that? And I think, yeah, you know, you, you just need to understand what your customer profile looks like and build the capabilities to, to close that kind of customer. Yeah. Wise words. Okay, great. And in sticking on that theme of selling into enterprise, uh, Often, you know, it's, it's a big stumbling block. How do entrepreneurs get the balance right between talking to the, the technical team who's going to implement it, the end user who says, oh, I want this product, I want to buy it, and, the, you know, you often the CFO or the head of department who actually holds the budget and holds the key to you actually getting in there. How do you balance that? It's a great question. I think that kind of touching on, on what we were just talking about, it really depends on the size of the customer already, right? Like, if you're selling something that a, a user can pay for on their credit card, just speak to the user, you know, really, really focus on the user. Make sure your product is solving their pain point, is easy to pick up, is easy to pay for, and, and you're happy. You know, they will self-serve and, and you can go from there. On the other hand, if, if you're dealing with a big enterprise, you have to understand that there's a much broader range of stakeholders than just your user. You know, yes, your, your user... It's very, very hard to sell something that a user doesn't love and won't, won't stand up for. So, you know, you've got to get that right. But that's not enough. You know, it's got to work, as I spoke about earlier, it's got to work with the IT system of big enterprises. If, if that's your customer, you know, you've got to, if need be, go through ISO certification. You've got to, to make sure you plug into all the standard apps they're using and basically try to minimize resistance from the IT department. And it's kind of a, a bit of a, a spectrum in that, you know, the more the user really, really wants this and it's solving a pain point, the more they will push IT to, to get something through. But again, the, the more that you haven't optimized for IT and, and there's still friction, the harder it is unless the customer is really pushing. And then you, the right often in the third stakeholder who is the budget holder who might never actually use the product, but who is going to decide ultimately whether it gets used and whether there's, there's money for it. And so a key thing when you're selling a big enterprise is understanding who all those people are, you know, who are the, the decision makers, the stakeholders, and what do they want? You know, often, so if, if you're looking at dev tools, say, a, a dev tool that's selling to a developer, well, you need to be really easy to use. You need to solve their pain point, everything else. But if it's not the developer that's holding the budget, if it's someone above them, often they care a bit less about ease of use. They care about things like reporting and understanding, you know, are my developers being productive? Is that working for me? So, so the question they're asking is a bit different from your, your frontline users. And, and you just have to be able to build the, the functionality that, that solves both set of needs. And again, kind of going back, the bigger the enterprise, the more the stakeholders, the, the more somewhat overlapping sets of needs you've got to fulfill, which means more product build, more complex, everything else, right? Mm, absolutely. And, and what I've seen work well is if you have like an internal champion who's then driving it through and navigate, you're never going to understand their corporate culture and how it works. How do you find those champions who are going to really, you know, move mountains and knock down doors to make sure it gets, you know, implemented? Yeah, I think it's 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 really is a key thing, and, and actually interesting. What you see is deals fall over if like an internal champion moves away or something like that. You know, they, they are so important. I think often the internal champion is the person who has the big big pain point. Uh, you know, ultimately it's much more likely they're going to go and hustle and push the rest of the organization if you're solving a big pain for them, and and you know it's something that's going to make their life materially better. So I think that's a key one. Often there's also an element of like just being an early adopter or, or certainly in the early days when these internal champions are so much more important because, you know, once you've got a rack of logos and you can say, look, all your competitors are using us, it becomes less risky and you, you don't need someone sticking their neck out for you. But in the early days, you, you need like someone who really feels the pain point, 
an early adopter, someone who's willing to, to take a risk and, and move forward. Um, like I think that those are the key ones. A side question, I guess. Um, how do entrepreneurs balance that dynamic where you've got a fledgling company, you've raised your pre-seed or seed round, you're selling to a big corporate, and they say, well, what if you don't raise your follow-on round? You're dead in 12 months, and it's going to take us 12 months to integrate you. How do you look bigger than you are and get them to make that leap of faith? Yeah, it's the, um, the kind of chicken and egg thing. I, I, if you give me money, I will be able to raise a round, and then I will be nice and big and safe for you. But yeah, until you do that, I can't. I think it's very case-dependent. Like, like professionalism is really important, being quick, very responsive, finding the, the people who care enough about getting this pain point solved to take a risk. I think that's a key one. And then it, like, you know, things like marketing materials, making sure everything looks really polished, a website that gives the impression that there's a big business here. All these things are really important, right? Like not none of them will get you past. Like some, some procurement departments are just going to absolutely pin down, you know, I want to see financials. I want to see bank statements. You can't lie, right? You, you, you've got to give them what you want, but look as professional and competent as you can. And then, you know, just try to find a champion who's going to push and care enough that they can look past the, the, the slightly larger risk because your balance sheet isn't the same as, as an IBM or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, really useful. Great. Let's go on to 1.3. So the number one reason why startups fail is because they run out of cash slash rate, you know, fail to raise that follow-on funding that we spoke about. And um, you spoke earlier about B2B payment terms what should entrepreneurs expect and is there any way that they can help you know better manage their cash flow yeah i think it is really important and the key thing is like understanding what is really a signature as in something you can invoice against versus someone in a meeting saying this is great we're going to go with it because i think you know <laughs> those things are not the same and particularly what you often have in a big enterprise is you have that decision maker who makes that decision and says great you know this We've compared you against the, the the three other things. You're the clear winner. We're going to use this. Like, great step one. But then often you've got legal and procurement, which, you know, those processes are not quick. Um, and the bigger the organization, often the slower they are. So you have to factor in, you know, it can be a month. It can be two months. It can be six months. It can be longer, frankly. And, and that's a long time to wait. And so you, you have to factor those in. And, and you know, if you can use your legals or if you've been through the process before, it will be quicker, but it's always going to take time. And then I think the other bit that is really easy to forget is, great, you've got through procurement, you've got through legal, you now actually have a signed contract. Fantastic, you know, job done, tick the box, move on. Well, then you've got to raise an invoice. And then you're on payment terms. And, you know, in a big organization, it's often three-month payment terms. And that's only if they pay on time and they often don't because they can squeeze their suppliers for cash flow and so it's fine if you've got a good runway and, and you know cash isn't an issue but <laughs> that's rarely the thing you know often for startups cash is an issue and if you're counting on getting money in you know 20 days 30 days after the contract is signed it can be really unpleasant having to wait an extra couple of months and you know there are ways around this with revenue-based financing or invoice factoring or things like that but just be aware that there's a difference between saying yes and signing a contract and signing a contract and wiring the money. And, you know, you need to figure out what that gap is and, and be ready to survive it. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a lot of entrepreneurs saying, you know, we've just signed with so-and-so, we don't really need the money from you. <laughs> uh, and you say, well, I think you might. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whether investors actually come in. Yeah, and I think the thing is, like, as a VC, I understand that there is time from signing a contract to get the money. And I don't, if I'm coming in as a new investor, I can cover that gap. So that's okay. You know, it still looks like momentum for me. But if you're not ready with a round, you know, there, there is a period where you're going to be waiting for that money to come in and you, you need a way to get through it. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, let's move on to the boardroom. 
And um, I think, you know, so, so topic number two is extracting the most from your board, because I'm not sure that everyone does that. And I think one of the contributing factors could be that for some founders, uh, the board will probably be the first board that they've ever been in. Uh, so they're not necessarily sure what to expect, how to extract the most value. So for the avoidance of doubt, could you explain, first of all, the role of the board and then in particular, how to hold effective board meetings? And of course, a lot happens around that. Maybe we can go into that too, but over to you. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, there's two key things with, with a board. One is to, to hold management to account, you know, make sure that, that what needs to be do, being done is being done. And I think the other one is to be setting the overall strategic direction of the business, you know, to, to be feeding into strategy, you know, being part of these discussions and, and, and you know, ultimately the, the founders are going to really drive that, but, you know, a good board should be feeding into that and, and, you know, helping the managers get out of the trenches they're in and, and actually see what's happening. And I think, you know, it's really easy to focus on the first of those, particularly when it's your first board and particularly, you know, in the early days, you've been running this business yourself. You've been doing well, you know, clearly you have because you've got VC money, but then you raise someone else's money and you go through that investment process and, and they absolutely bombard you with questions. You know, why are you doing this? How's this going? Where's the pipeline? All that. And it sets like a pattern of behavior where you're used to reporting to, to a VC. And then, so you get the round closed and you go into the first board meeting and it's really easy to, to kind of follow, you know, follow those patterns of behavior. Ultimately, they've given you a lot of money. You need to show that you're, you're using it sensibly. So you go in and you, you, you brief them. You, you kind of get them up to speed on the business and you tell them everything that's happening. And as a VC, you know, we spend our lives going through pitch decks and, and, and probing. So we do the obvious thing and we ask questions. We, we dig into the pipeline. We, you know, why you make, why is the product roadmap look like this and, and, and such like, and, it could be great discussions, but what it means is ultimately you kind of get to 45 or sorry, 15 minutes before the end of the meeting. And, and then it's like, okay, and now other topics and strategy and, and makes it really hard to actually then have the discussions that, that need to be had around, you know, is this the right strategy? What other things could we be doing? You know, are, are we, are we trying to fill the right gaps with hiring? You know, the, the big strategic questions of the business. So I think, you know, when I think about, making a board effective ultimately you always going to have to report and, and show how the business is doing but it's about doing that in as as efficient a way as possible to maximize the use of the time you've got together to be getting into the big strategic questions and, and you know making sure that everyone's having a say on those and and, and the founding team are, are getting the most value from the board who often will have been through these discussions a few times and therefore could just give like a broader but obviously shallower view of you know i've seen other companies that aren't exactly the same as this but they've done things this way or you know our other companies are finding that hiring is actually taking a bit longer see you know this hiring plan just looks a bit too ambitious or i don't think this is actually going to get you to series a you actually need to be aiming for this you know all these things that if you're actually just digging through the pipeline and why you missed a particular client you're not going to get to and in, in, in those useful conversations yeah, excellent. It actually, you, you reminded me of something I heard once before is how to determine the health of a board and it's the percentage time looking forward versus back. And it should be, you know, 80% forward and 20% back. And most boards are probably the opposite of that if they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, like fairly junior VCs can often, I find, exacerbate this problem because if you think, right, like a VC has taken a risk on you. They've stood in front of their team and their investment committee and said, this is a good business. We should invest in it. And then they got the first board meeting and they're under pressure to be able to go back to their team and say, it's still a good business. You know, yeah, things are going the right way. And, and so <laughs> they're kind of solving their problems sometimes and like getting as much info and, and understanding the business and making sure they haven't made a mistake, which is understandable, but it's not what you want from your board ultimately. You know, what you want from your board is, what should we be worrying about? Are we worrying about the right things? Are we doing the right things about the things we're worrying about? Uh, and so like one thing that can work really nicely if you've got the discipline is get your board pack out a week early and ask for questions via email. 
And that way you can have a lot of that conversation. Why did you miss that client? What's happening here? Oh, I see expenses are a bit higher than we expected. Or by email. And you're not wasting time when, you know, maybe four, five, six, seven people sitting around a table listening to, you know, a couple of points around, you know, operating expenses or whatever else. Typos. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell also you know, during the board meeting you can say, it was in the pack, didn't you read it? And that will silence them for a good hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to give people time. But like, yeah, I think, you know, the thing with board packs is they're a lot of work, right? Like creating a board pack is, is massive, particularly in the early days when often the founder doesn't really have anyone else to give the work to. And so you, you put a lot of work in there and it's <laughs> the very bare minimum is that the, the people will have come probably having read them and be up to speed and, and you know, probably have considered them. Um, and, and yeah, you know, sometimes that isn't the case. And I think, you know, you're entirely within your rights to, to call that out and, and make it clear that you, you, you don't love that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of, of, you know, or leading on from that, uh, the composition of the board, you've spoken about investor directors there wanting to report back. Uh, there's, of course, observers. We've got the, the non-exec directors. We've got the chair. Uh, tell us a bit about, a bit more about what good board composition looks like, what you should look for, um, and perhaps, you know, big question, but you know, a little bit about each role and the, the role that they play in ensuring you you have an effective board. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and on the question, like what, what an effective board looks like, I'm biased because I'm an early stage investor, but, but my answer would be small <laughs> because like, it's just much, much easier to dig into sticky strategic problems with a small number of people, as soon as you've got a board that is like seven people and you say, so I'm thinking about this, what do you think? And then you go around one by one and everyone gives you their thoughts. You know, you've lost 15 minutes plus. And, and so that really limits the number of things you can really dig into. So, you know, do try to keep your board small as much as possible. And, and like in the early days, you know, at a seed stage or pre-seed stage, the founders and one, one, investor director i think is, is fine and, and you know the investor director there is basically part you know, part of it is looking after their investment frankly you know that they, they put a decent chunk of money into your business and they need to make sure that you are using that money sensibly uh, but also making sure you can draw on, on all their learnings across you know hopefully a handful of boards and a bunch of different businesses and you know just again seeing that breadth um and, and seeing what's out in the market. And, you know, the areas where investor directors are particularly useful is the areas where they really focus. So things like fundraising is often, you know, yeah, you know, they, they should be able to help a lot there. Um, potentially things like hiring and that, like a lot, of, a lot of VCs will spend time with senior folks or with recruiters and such like, so they can help you with that kind of thing. Um, chair, finding chairman candidates, all that stuff. So those are areas where, you know, VCs, I think, or investor directors are really helpful. At some point, you might want to bring in non-exec directors. So those are directors who aren't linked to any of the investors on the cap table and aren't founders. And there's a few different reasons you bring those in. Normally in the early stages, it's about having real subject matter experts to, to flesh out the board. So, you know, if, if you're selling big enterprise software tickets and you actually come from a, a product background or something like that, you know, that's not the end of the world, but it would really help your board to have people who, who really get that side of things. So you might want to bring in a, a non-exec who can, can really, really get that side of the business and, and help you through it all. And so when you think about non-exec directors, I think often it's the key thing is figuring out the, the skill sets of the founders and also the, the investor directors. You know, if your investor directors have just done enterprise sales, they might actually be able to cover that for you. And, and in which case, you know, it's probably not going to give you a lot of additional value. On the other hand, if you've got a couple of consumer-focused funds, then, then yeah, maybe, maybe they will want to bring in someone who can really bring that expertise. And then on chairman, you know, that's a chairperson. That's basically someone to act as almost the liaison between the management and, and the board. And so part of that is, is keeping the, the board meetings running well. And that gets much more important once the board meetings, you know, once the board gets to a decent size, because 
it just takes a couple of you know VCs who just love talking, and you're really going to struggle to get anything done. And you need someone to just kind of say, look, I think we've we've discussed this point. You know, if need be, we can take it offline. Let's move forward. Let's keep to a, keep to time and, and all that stuff. So kind of shepherding that, and it's kind of it's often hard for the the CEO to do that because it, it it can look like you're you're being evasive or you're not really engaging with a question. But then I think that's part of it. But the more important thing is is like outside of the meetings, making sure that the management are thinking about the right things and, and kind of working as a liaison between the management and the, the board and the cap table to to let them focus on running the business. Uh, and again, I think, you know, often a chairperson has, has been through things once or twice before, and you might look for different things. So like some founders just really want to focus on running the, you know, sales or product or whatever and the actual admin and the blocking and tackling maybe is, is less their thing and, and then you know maybe a chairperson who can, can manage that side of things is great otherwise you know it might be someone who's just got an incredible network and is going to help with recruitment or you know late stage vcs or whatever else so you know who you want for chairperson is going to vary depending on the shape of your business and everything else but Often, once the board gets to a decent size, you know, maybe, maybe Series A, probably, you know, Series B, I'd say, yeah, you, you probably want someone who can come in and, and, and work across it. And then I think observers are, you know, they're, they're a bit different. That, that's really when a VC wants a board seat but can't get a full board seat, or, you know, often a VC will have someone maybe a bit junior who's pushed the deal, but they're too junior to take a full board seat they'll maybe ask for a board seat and someone senior from the fund will take that. And then the junior will, will take the observer seat. And it's, it's, you know, VC is basically an apprentice model and it's a good way for, for the VC, you know, the, the, the junior person to, to upskill. And also it's often quite good for, for the team because you get access to some gray hair in a, in a more senior person who can help you with the big strategic questions, but then you've also got someone who's actually really engaged and, and is going to be answering your emails and, and out there hustling. And so it can work quite well with the caveat that, again, board size. Adding one other person, if they're going to be weighing in on every question, is it's just slow. Um, and so in the early days, it's less problematic to have a, an observer because the board will be smaller. I think you do really have to set expectations that, you're not going to keep observers on every round. I think every fundraising round is a good chance to have a look and say, is this board right? Do we, do we need this many people? Can we start clearing some people out? Um, and and you know, just making sure we're, we're the right size. Oh, very comprehensive. I, I can't really add too much to that except say that's phenomenal. Um, what to just quickly for the benefit of the entrepreneurs, if you have four investors on your cap table and each has an investor director and they will say we need to report back to our fund what's best practice there so it, it kind of depends right like it's not that uncommon to have a, a new investor director every round of funding uh you know that that is the way of it but again i think you know and, and as a seed fund we, we've had this it makes sense for the earlier investors to start coming off at some point um you know and it it's in everyone's interest, right? Like what you needed from a board at seed stage is different from what you're going to need from your board at series B. You know, if, if what you need is like someone who is ultra well connected into a bunch of corporates in your space and can get you those intros, I'm probably not that person. Right. And so you need less of my time. You need more of someone else's time. Uh, and so it makes sense to transition off your early investors, and and you'll give their board seats to the later stage with the caveat that, well, two. One is like sometimes you just have a super, super relationship with the with the early investors and, and you want them on and, and you're great, right? Like it, it, it can work. And two, sometimes like they have a skill set that is just particularly suited to what you're doing. Like if you're really deep infrastructure software, there are probably not that many VCs that really get it. And, and it's maybe worth, keeping earlier investors on but you know ultimately I, I only have so many hours in the day i do need to roll off the boards so that i can take new board seats and you know i do accept that 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 is the normal model in, in dc 
Yeah, and and in terms of that, in terms of the board, on the cap table, if you've got some pre-seed investors and you're getting to a Series B, you know, would you try and look to say, look, you know, you're going to make a decent return and try get them off your cap table? What's your thoughts on that? I, I'm flexible. Like, if you're raising a massive round at a great up round, and and also particularly, you know, the big rounds often the new investors are just fighting for as much ownership as they can get. In which case, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, clear out the cap table, give these people a, a, a nice exit, um, reflect the risk they've taken and let them recycle the cash. Um, if they're not being problematic, I, I, it's not something I would really push for, but like if the opportunity is there, why wouldn't you do it? On the other hand, if if you've just somehow come to a place where you're not really aligned, you're there saying, look, I've been in for five years, I need my cash, when are we going to exit all that stuff? I think, I think, you know, yeah, right. Like that's not where the business is going, but we'll try to help you out here. So long as it fits with the needs of the business. I think, you know, everyone has to accept that the needs of the business come first. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. That segues nicely onto question bank three fundraising 101 back to uh, university. Um, so you don't get a second chance to make a good first impression, old cliche. Um, and so when approaching Series A investors, what uh, well, what approach should entrepreneurs use and what's the best strategy when building up a shortlist and how do they not turn off the investors? We're going to delve into that more, I guess. What's the best strategy in the first instance? Yeah, so... I, I generally think it's worth being quite selective in, in who you're going out to. And, you know, if you're doing that, you should put the work in, right? Um, and so there's a few things. One is like the deck. Realistically, <laughs> VCs are quite lazy. We see a lot of opportunities and, and it's, we train ourselves to, to evaluate businesses on, on a deck. And so you can do it without a deck, but you're making it hard for yourself. Like having a good deck that builds the narrative you want to tell and is polished and presents you in the best possible way, just positions you better. Like, yeah, you, you can say, you know, I don't, I don't like sharing a deck, we just chat. But then you're really relying on, I don't know, the strength of the person who connected you, your LinkedIn, something to get my attention enough to take that first chat, because I don't have that much time, right? And so, yeah, position yourself well with a good deck that, that really builds the narrative. And then, you know, yeah, find the right in. So ideally, someone who knows them well, who can make that intro, you know, if you know their portfolio companies, fantastic things like that. If you know investors they've worked with, that's very good. Entrepreneurs they're close to, yeah, all that stuff. If not, right, it's not the end of the world. A good cold inbound can work super well, you know. Hey, I'm such and such, I'm doing this. I think I'm interested in you because I'm similar to your portfolio companies, X, Y, Z. The market is huge. We're hitting great traction. I would love a little bit of time to talk. You know, punchy, personalized, really to the point, something along those lines. Like, personally, I really don't like, um, you know, automated emails that are clearly sent out to a huge number of investors and, and no attempt at personalization or anything like that because it's suggesting that this probably isn't a great fit to what I'm looking at because the person hasn't really bothered to do that work. So as soon as I see something where I'm like, this person understands what I'm looking for, well, hopefully that suggests that, you know, they are reasonably similar to what I'm looking for because they've bothered to put this work in and do it. So yeah, you know, give yourself the best chance by by being focused and, and by being personalized. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, I think if you think about on the commercial side, you 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 know that spray and pray approach probably wouldn't work that well either, and that's the same person whether they're targeting VCs or commercial people. You're like, I think you're going to turn off your customer base if you do this. Absolutely, it's like this doesn't look very professional, right? Like, I can't believe many people are just mass emailing potential prospects in the uh, with generic things in the hope that they'll they'll convert because <laughs> conversion rates are unlikely to be high. Mm. Yeah, I think we I've got a very good story on that from the other day. And uh, yeah, that like the emailing on one on one hand, and then there's an automated bot coming on the other hand and just unwinds all the goodwill they built up over email. And yes, it was automated, but you're like, okay, so you're not serious. And uh, yeah, so I think think very carefully about those uh, new tech tools. Um, in terms of um, 
polished deck. So a good deck gets you the first meeting. And then you come up against investor scrutiny, because as you say, they're going to need to take it onto their superiors and, and sell it. So they need to really be sure. Um, what have you seen about how entrepreneurs handle Q&A well? Um, and if you can talk a little bit uh, and badly and talk a bit about uh, inter-founder dynamics during those meetings where it does get a bit heated, there's a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, tell us your story. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, and so yeah, Q&A is like super important. Some founders are just incredible at running through a narrative in the deck. You know, they've clearly practiced it and practiced it. And like, you see it a bit less now, but you know, when there were demo days, you'd see founders who just had those pitches cold. Like they were really, really good at, at working through a pitch. And it, it's great, right? Like it's worth doing. But at a one-on-one -on -one meeting, people are going to ask questions. And, and certainly myself, I'll dive in almost immediately. You know, what do you mean by this? What, what about that? You know, who's this? And like, I think the key thing is, is to, to treat the, it, it's kind of like a job interview almost, like, Treat them as opportunities to show your understanding and show the business. Don't treat them as threats to be closed down. And, and I, that's where it gets bad, where it's like, oh, they take me off my flow. I'm just going to answer this as quickly and as kind of in a closed manner as possible so I can get back to my flow and, and, and show my story. Because that's not what you want. What you're doing is you're, you're building a relationship and you're building trust. And they are giving you information about the things they're worried about. So you now need to take that and show how you can address that worry. You know, yes, I do understand that there's competition in this space, but our customers have compared us against that competition. They've chosen us. Bang. This person gets it. Great. You know, or, yeah, the, the sales cycle we think is long, but here's how we're optimizing for, for making sure we can get them closed within the time frame of this round or whatever, right? Like what, what's not a good answer is, no, no, the, the sales cycle is going to be three months. How? What gives you what gives you that confidence? What or, or you know, th there's no competition like us. Um, we're, we're unique in the market. Okay. Um, so yeah, you know, engage with a question. Ideally, what you'll start doing is after a few pitches, you'll see similar questions coming up, and, and you'll get better. And, and you really do see that. Like founders, a founder at the 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 start of their fundraising journey versus at the end. You know, it's it's really quite different often, and particularly like fundraisers where they've gone well and the founders build confidence and all that, you see it and it's like, wow, this person really, really gets it. Uh, so that's part of it. And then, yeah, like the inter-founder dynamics, I think the key thing there is when there are multiple of you in the meeting, you have to balance that quite carefully, right? Like it's really easy if the CEO's there, they answer every question, right? Obviously. But as soon as you have a few people, this raises questions, like why are all these people in a meeting? So there's absolutely no point in bringing someone to a meeting if they're not going to answer at least one question or do something. It's just wasting their time. Like the, found, the, the VC isn't going to build any kind of meaningful view if they don't interact. So if you're bringing them, they, they've got to be doing something. But make sure you understand who's covering what areas. You know, founder, like CEOs who just talk over team members the whole time is not a good look. Um, you know, it just looks like, you know, the dynamics not right there <laughs> and really really whatever you do just be aware that people can see what you're doing right so like if a co-founder says something and you disagree you do not show it on your face like i've, I've had founders roll their eyes or, or an exhalation of breath when they didn't like an answer and it's like i'm taking a bet that these people can work together for the next five seven ten years under high pressure situations. And when I see that, that does not fill me with confidence. Uh, and, and, you know, like VCs often don't have that many red flags, I would say, but that can be a real red flag straight away because inter-founder problems is, is, is a killer for businesses. So really, really make sure that doesn't come across when you're, uh, when you're presenting. You know, you, you have to be there for each other and look, if someone makes a mistake, you 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 deal with it maturely and, and compassionately. Um, and, and yeah, like, and also, yeah, if someone makes a mistake, you don't hang them out to dry. As, as the founder, as the CEO, the book stops with you. And, and you know, I'm going to be looking to see that. There's, there's no good making it all about someone else. And, and it was them, not me, that, that, that made this screw up. Yeah. 
that's a nice segue into our last question about those red flags that really turn investors off. I mean, as you say, it's not always a long list, but um, what would you say your top three are that are real, like, yeah, no-goes? Yeah, yeah, good question. So what what is probably the, the like, anything around worrying interpersonal relationship between founders, anything like that, where basically I'm thinking there's just a fissure here in this business and it, it potentially will go, like, it's going to cause problems related a little bit but but different is just founders where i don't believe i can work with them so whether that be like just ego being anything like that um untrustworthy like anything where it feels like you're being slippery or or not engaging with things you know that that's a massive issue and then i think that the third is just like being so being ambitious is, is great but not really having a, an understanding of, of how challenging things are and, and like throwing out like wildly in or wildly optimistic forecasts you know we're going to close this big account in a month oh, oh so so how many meetings you had oh we, we had a really good meeting well <laughs> that just suggests that you don't understand the complexity of what you're trying to do or like no nonsense i i once saw a five-year revenue plan that, that had numbers in the billions in year five. And to be fair, there, there are a handful of businesses that have hit those plans ever, but it's probably best not to, to plan on being one of those, you know, ambitious targets. Yes. But, but assuming naught to, to a billion in, in a few years makes me kind of worried. And, and when you talk about uh, billions, you're not talking about valuation, you're talking about revenue, which is, I think, the big misnomer, right? Yes. So, yeah, like, yes, companies get to, to valuations of billions on big revenue multiples, but it's, it's incredibly rare to get to revenues of billions mm -hmm. in, in any kind of the time frame that matters for a, a seed stage fund. So, yes, yeah. um, just, just very, very ambitious targets. Yeah, yeah. And, and how do you balance that with some uh, entrepreneurs say, I put in the hockey stick because I went to the last meeting and they said I wasn't ambitious enough and I put in like a, what I thought was going to happen. So I just put this in because that's what I was told to do. How do you get that balance right? <laughs> Good question. Ultimately, you know, it, it's frustrating, right? Because VCs all like, ultimately, tell me what you want from the model and I'll make the model say <laughs> What, what you wanted to say, right? It's, it's just Excel, <laughs> anyone can do that. But I think the, the, the key thing with a model is, I'm not looking for the numbers, I'm looking for the, the, the kind of balance of ambition. Can this get to big enough that it's gonna be a really good outcome for, for, for my fund with the, does this person understand the key drivers of this business and, and what the limiting factors are and, and how they're going to have to overcome those. And when you're talking about billions of revenue, it makes me think that you just don't understand the key drivers because there's likely to be a lot of bottlenecks before you get to that point. And, and, and I, yeah, there's a lot to cover. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. I'm going to summarize all your wisdom in, in, a, in a neat uh, paragraph or two, and then we'll come back to you. So. Going back to number one, getting to market a B2B SaaS, tier ones can take all your time and resources. So be careful, you know, keep it going in the background, but perhaps start spinning up to tier two customers that are going to convert a lot quicker. When selling to enterprise customers, be aware of all of the stakeholders and their respective needs. And perhaps if you need to focus on one, find one with the biggest pain and that you're solving and hopefully they'll become the champion in the organization that really implements your product. And in terms of getting paid, expect from a yes, it might take six months to actually sign a deal and it might take three to six months you know, to get paid from there. So make sure your cash runway is long enough. In terms of extracting the most from your board, a board is all about holding management to account, but more importantly, setting the strategic direction for the business and allowing you as founders to step away from the coalface. 
Remember, it's not a reporting session, as Luke said, uh, so don't let it become one and make sure that you're spending at least 80% of the time looking forward in terms of strategic thinking and the plan rather than looking in the rear view mirror. Now, Luke said boards should be small, you know, try keep them below seven people, and I've heard five is a good number. Um, and in terms of non-exec directors, get people that are sector experts that can fill gaps in the management team um, and really add that bit of gold dust. And remember that the chairperson is a liaison, it's a, they act as an intermediary between the founders and the investors, because sometimes as the CEO, it might be difficult to you know, shut down certain people in the board meeting if they're talking too much. So consider getting a chair, especially as you go through the funding rounds and your board gets bigger. Uh, remember that in time, your uh, seed investors may fall away from your board and your cap table, which is a good and healthy thing. So on every round, have that inflection point, have a look, does it make sense? But if you've got a very strong relationship or you've got a very nice friendly face with a lot of valuable advice and contacts, perhaps keep them on. Now, in terms of fundraising 101, lots to learn here. Um, in terms of approaching Series A investors, be very, well, any investors, be very targeted. Make sure it's personalized. Don't turn them off with bots. Uh, have a really great deck. It will speak for you and open more doors than anything. Um, and if you need to find introductions to VCs, some prefer introductions, find out how they like to work and do it that way. When you're in the pitch meeting, treat Q&A as an opportunity. Don't get caught in the headlights. Don't try and shut the question down. Use it as an example or as, a, as an opportunity to demonstrate your credibility, how you've thought things through and build a trust. We'll, we'll trust because after all, you're developing a relationship with VCs. They just happen to often have a check at the end of that. And um, in terms of inter-team inter dynamics, excuse me, uh, make sure you know who's answering which question ahead of time so that you all look joined up as a management team. And finally, red flags. There's, there's a few, but uh, we focused on three for today. Uh, things that will turn VCs off are usually poor inter-founder you know, dynamics, um, founders or management teams with egos, big egos, or that seem untrustworthy. So always make sure you're not too creative with the truth. And of course, make sure your uh, forecasts are grounded in reality and they're not too wildly optimistic. So thanks for sharing that, Luke. Is there anything that you want to edit or add or, um, yeah. No, so, I think that, that's uh, a great summary. Thank you. I, I wish I'd been so pithy. <laughs> <laughs> you wish, well, you were, I, I just I just extracted it all. So that's all your, your wisdom. Uh, thank you so much, Luke. Now tell us if we want to get in touch with you uh, and, and or forward partners, what's the best way to get in contact? So yeah, I think um, email at luke at forwardpartners.com is, is typically the best. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, nice and easy, although Smith's not the, the easiest um, surname to, to get. I'm also um, on Medium and Twitter at LukeSmith402. Um, amazing. Okay, great. Well, look, thanks again for sharing all that wisdom. It's been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot too. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. My pleasure. That's all for this episode. Keep tuning in for more exclusive insights from seasoned investors, accomplished entrepreneurs, and professional service advisors. Follow the Tippy Top blog on all major social media platforms, including Twitter, TikTok, Insta, Facebook, or now Meta, LinkedIn. And of course, you can find me, Alexander Lee, on LinkedIn. And you can also check out my website, thetippytop.com. Until next time, keep pushing, and I'll see you at the Tippy Top.